Today's reading is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting with the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found at the alt- an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in the temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their hands, of their lands. God did this so they, could, they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set the day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them, Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. So good to be back with you all. 
had a wonderful vacation with Brooke. We did nothing but drink coffee and read. It was like the perfect vacation for us. It rained the entire time we were there, and we just enjoyed a lot of good coffee and, and some good books during that. And uh, we had this fun thing happen where Thursday we were getting ready to leave, and Sam and Sarah were coming in, so we got to pass each other on the way and just say hi, and they tried to run us over with their car. I'm just kidding. I just want to make sure Sam listens to this so that he chastised me when you know I was gone. And so now I get to chastise him a little bit in the sermon. But it was such a wonderful time. And you guys got to have a wonderful time here as well with Pastor Phil coming and sharing. It was so wonderful to have him with us last week. And I'm thankful that the Lord orchestrated that. I'm thankful for God bringing that together. And I loved listening to his sermon. I didn't listen to it till last night, but Brooke and I got to sit down and listen to it. And I'm glad that he preaches as long as I do. Um, So that's something that we also have in common there. Uh, Ultimately, I thank God for calling Phil to Plattsburgh 40 plus years ago. I thank God that he is the God who has always been moving, the God who has always been orchestrating all of these wonderful things. I I thank God for his faithfulness to our church over the past 40 years. He has been moving and guiding and leading through the, the ups and the downs, and there have been both of those throughout our history. But God's faithfulness has never wavered, and we got to hear some of that last week. And it's always good to look back. It's always good for us to remember where we've come from, to remember what the Lord has done previously. But we should never do that with uh, kind of the understanding that we're pining for the good old days, right? That's never the reason that we look back, being like, oh, if only we could just return to this point in time. Well, time's changed. Things are are different, and we celebrate all that God has done. And I don't say any of this to denigrate the past at all. I'm not speaking against the past or anything that's happened in the past. We celebrate all of that as a church. I celebrate all of that. But I do want to acknowledge that the past is the past, and that we do have to follow God's leading for us today. And so with Pastor Phil sharing last week, with me sharing this week, we're kind of doing a look back and a look ahead. And it's not for us to value one of those things above the other. It's to value both of them, to value what God did in the past and to value what God is doing currently and in the future. You know, the gospel and our mission to make disciples, it remains the same throughout time. It was the same 40 plus years ago when Phil first came to plant this church, and it's still the same calling that we have today. It's to go make disciples of all nations. It's to share the gospel. That doesn't change. But methods and vision specifics do change over time. And that's okay. It's good. Now, change is hard, right? Anyone disagree with that? Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't talking to any crazy people this morning. I love you all. Change is hard. It's difficult. And oftentimes when we experience change, we don't like it. And that's me included, right? All of us experience that. We don't like change because it feels at times like a little piece of us is being ripped away as change happens. And I I, I get that and I understand that. But in life, change is always going to happen, right? Things never stay the same. Things are always changing. Things are always moving in a certain direction. And as I was trying to figure out how to to maybe best illustrate this for us, I kept coming to the idea of a family. And I think that's a a good analogy for us because the church is a family. And I want you to think about a family and think about how it starts. You know, it starts with two people. 
Two people that get together, and you guys last week got to do the fun experiment of looking around and seeing, uh, marking the occasion and all of that, just like Phil does when, when he does a wedding ceremony. It starts there. It starts with two people. But that family doesn't stay there, right? It doesn't just stay that day one, wedding day, I do, I do, yes, okay, let's get out of here. It changes, it morphs over time. Kids get added into the midst. What your job was in the beginning is likely not what your job is 30 years from now. The house that you lived in for Brooke and I, it was this tiny 400 square foot uh, apartment. It was terrible. I'm glad that things have changed. It was too small of a space for us. Things change over time. Our jobs, our career, our family, even our kids, right? In the early days, we'll have infants, and they're small, and they're cute, and adorable, and they scream occasionally, but that's okay, because their cuteness allows for, for them to have the occasional meltdown. But over time, they grow, and how you parent has to change with that as well. You can't parent a teenager the same way that you parent an infant. If you do, things, they're going to wind up a little messed up. And so church is like a family. It grows and it morphs and it changes and people get added into the family and people leave from the family and all of that happens and it's okay and it's good. It doesn't make the family less a family because it looks different now than it did then. It doesn't make this the ideal version of the family and that a bad ideal of the family. It's all the family. It changes over time and I hope that helps us to kind of understand that a little bit. The specifics of the family change, but the purpose remains the same. It remains the same at its core. And the church is a big family. And that's with everything that comes with that. The good and, well, the not so good. It's difficult. It's hard. It's this life that God has called us to. And what I want us to get, what I want us to remember, is that we're all in this together. That God is still moving in our midst that he's still leading us to follow him. He's still seeking and saving the lost. The same mission that he called this church to in the early stages is the same mission that we participate in today. It's to go make disciples of our community and world. It's to see our community and world develop a transformational relationship with Jesus. And so this is this morning we're trying to bridge the past, the present, and ultimately the future of where we're going. And I want to pray before we, we dive in. Father, we thank you and we celebrate you. We celebrate your goodness and your faithfulness towards us. And we thank you that you care about the North Country, that you care about this church. You care about these people. And we thank you that you've been moving in our church over the last 40 plus years. We thank you that you called Pastor Phil here. That you called him to, to plant this church, to establish another gospel-centered church here in this community. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we thank you that you've called us here. You've called us to participate in your mission that you continue to lead us and guide us. Lord, and we just pray that this morning as we dive into your word, as we look at your scripture, that you would help us to, to see where it is that you're calling us. You would help us to see what it might look like for us to be a church that's present in our community, 
to be a church that's for the gospel, that's for people around us. And we love you, we praise you. It's in Christ's name, amen. So as we look around, it's really easy to see that our world has radically changed, right? Okay, guys, I need you to wake up a little bit, okay? Do we need to do the look around thing? Will will that help you guys a little bit? Our world has radically changed over the last 40 years. And you can look at any sort of data that you want to. Our our world has changed. And there have been some good changes that have happened and, well, some not-so-good changes that have happened as well. Both of those things are happening within our midst over the last 40 years. But even in the last 40 years or so, what we've seen in, in our world and in the church is ultimately some remarkable similarities to what the early church found themselves immersed in. What we're called to today, where we find ourselves uh, among a culture today, is very similar to what the early church had to deal with in its infancy, in its early days. It was in the midst of a culture that had different values, it had different beliefs, had different philosophies, and we find ourselves in that same thing. But we also have to be very careful because as things change, as we look around and see our culture changing, as we see the world changing, it's really easy to do one of two things. And both of these things are, are extremes. And so I'm going to get a little a technical for just a moment, but I'm going to explain what those things mean. So in missiology, which is the study of mission, it's a subset of theology, uh, there's this, this scale that happens, all right? And you guys just got to stay with me for, for a moment. There's a scale that's called a contextualization scale. And there are numbers that correspond to it, but on one side of the scale, you have what's called syncretism, And on the other side of the scale, you have obscurantism. And so let me tell you what those two terms mean so that we can try to avoid both the extremes. Because God hasn't called us to the extreme over here or the extreme over there. Both of those are wrong. He's called us to a sort of middle way or radical middle. And so syncretism is where we kind of lose our gospel distinctives and fully immerse ourselves in the world. It's where Christianity and the world meddle together fully, and it becomes this, this new thing that doesn't really look like Christianity at all. That, that's syncretism. It's us combining. It's synchronizing with the world fully, losing our distinctive nature of our beliefs. And obscurantism is on the other side. It's where we kind of sit in the confines of the church and we refuse to engage the world in a contextualized way. We just sit over here in our palaces and we're like, the world's over there. They're terrible, rotten people. We're over here. We got it. They're going to stay there. We're going to stay here. That's also not a way that we're called to go. We're not called to water down the gospel, nor are we called to hide away and wage cultural wars where we say, you're wrong, I'm right, fall in line or else. God hasn't called us to either one of those extremes. He's called us to be salt and light. He's called us to share the good news of the gospel with a people who don't yet know him. He's called us to go into the world to make disciples of all nations, sharing the good news of the gospel. He's called us to see our community and world develop a transformational relationship with Jesus Christ. And I hope that we can get behind that. I hope as people that we can see what God is doing, see that there are still countless people in the world around us, in our community that need the gospel, And that we would be so moved by that, 
that we would react. Not poorly, and we'll talk about that specifically in a moment, but that we would react in faithfulness. We'd react to God's goodness. We would react to our own salvation, where God forgave our sins, where he took us from enemies to friends and family of God, that we would react from that and go into the world. In order to see that happen, I think we have to be committed to three visional pillars. And we've talked about this before as a church, that we have to become a reaching church, an equipping church, an ascending church. And we're going to talk about those three pillars in the context of Acts 17 this morning. I've preached on Acts 17 before. It's one of those passages that I return to time and time again, because I think if we can understand some of the things at play in Acts 17, we'll understand better how to interact with a world that doesn't know Jesus and to do that faithfully. And so I want to start by reading uh, verses 16 through 21 for us. It says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, Areopagus, sorry, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so let me give us a little bit of context for what's happening in Acts 17. Paul has been on a missionary journey. He's going around and he's preaching the good news of Jesus. He's going to this city and that city and the next city. He's telling them about Jesus. And Paul comes to Athens as a sort of layover. It's not a scheduled stop on his itinerary. It's just a layover. He's there waiting for his ministry companions. And Paul has just come from two very difficult ministry assignments. And you can read those in Acts 17. He comes from Thessalonica and Berea right before this. And in both of those cities, well, he doesn't get good reception. He preaches the gospel and he's ultimately chased out of the city. There's this wonderful line in there that says, these men who have turned the world upside down have also come here. And I love that. Like, I want to be a man who turns the world upside down. I want us to be a church that turns the world upside down by being faithful to the gospel. But there's some pain in there. There's some difficulty in there for being that type of person. Paul has gone to these two cities. He's faithfully preached the gospel to them, and he's ultimately been ran out of those cities. And so he comes to Athens. He comes to the the epicenter of all the difficulty, of all the nonsense in the world, of all the competing philosophies and religions. And he comes to Athens as a layover. It's the epicenter of philosophy of the Greek gods. And as Paul looks around, what does he do? So these are a bunch of fine people who have their lives together. That's, That's not exactly what Paul does. He looks around and he was greatly distressed. 
He looks around and he sees these people worshiping this thing. He sees these people making their lives about this philosophy and that philosophy and no one can agree. And he looks out and he's greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so I want to clarify something before we dive into to a lot of this. It's okay to be greatly distressed. It's okay to look at the world and say there's something wrong with the world. It's okay to do that. It's okay to say that the world has lost their ever-loving minds. It's okay for us to do that. It's good for us to lament that things aren't as they should be. But what we do with that distress matters. How we go from distress to action after that matters greatly. Our distress should always lead us toward passionate and compassionate gospel-centered incarnational ministry. I'm going to read that again for us, and it should be up on the screen. Our distress should always lead us towards passionate and compassionate gospel-centered incarnational ministry. And I want to kind of break down that sentence, that sentence for us. I want to help us to to understand what I mean by those words. Because I think this will help us to see how we're supposed to move from distress to faithful gospel witness. So passionate. We should unashamedly proclaim the truth of the gospel, even though it may be inconvenient for us. That's what passion is about. Paul is in this city. He's just had two times of ministry that haven't gone great. And yet he's here and he's passionate. He sees a great need for the gospel, and he can't help but share it. In Jeremiah 20, verse 9, the prophet Jeremiah says, There is a fire within my bones, and I am weary with holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. That's what passion looks like when it's fueled by God, that that we see something in the world, and we're passionate to proclaim the gospel, even though it may not go well for us, even though there may be adversity, even though there may be consequences, even though there may be difficulty from not keeping our mouths shut. Compassionate. We should lovingly proclaim the hope of the gospel. You know, oftentimes there's, there's gospel presentations, and I've seen it way too often, where we just talk about judgment. We just talk about sin. We just talk about all of that and never get to the grace. Never get to the mercy and the love of God. We should always proclaim those things. We can't forget that part of the message. We can't forget God's grace and his mercy and his love. We're talking about a broken world, a Christless world. The message that we share to them isn't get your act together. That's not the message that God shared with us. His message was you're broken, your act isn't together. Here, I am the way. You are forgiven. Come, follow me. We have to remember that. If we miss that part, we've missed the gospel. Gospel Gospel-centered. We're not here to make the world a better place. That's not our call. Our calling is not to make the world a better place. It's not to convince others to align themselves with us politically, economically, or socially. We're here to proclaim the gospel. It's our our telos, our our chief end. It's what we should order our lives around to be people of the gospel. 
It should be central to who we are and what we proclaim. This should be what we're motivated by. It should be what motivates our inputs and our outputs. Being people of the gospel at the center of who we are. An incarnational. We are not to adopt an us versus them mentality. And this is so easy for us to do. It's so easy for us to adopt a mentality where it's us over here and them over there. That's something we must not do. The reason that we talk about this as incarnational, because it's rooted in what Jesus did for us. Jesus became incarnate. The Son of God becomes incarnate. He dwells among us. He tabernacles among us. He lives among not the good, not the people who have their lives all put together. He lives among sinners, lives among those who live as his enemies, not so that he can condemn them, but so that he could redeem them, so that he could show them that there is a better way. We too must live among those who are different from us. And Phil did a wonderful job last week talking about this. We have to live among those who are different than us, those who believe differently than us. Live among them so that we can proclaim the good news of the gospel to them in word and deed. Both of those are important. It's not just saying, you're wrong, I'm right, here's the news. It's showing them by how we live that the gospel is a better way. That God's mercy and his grace and his love aren't just something we believe, but something that we live. Something that has gotten so a hold of us that we can't help but live it out. Our distress should always lead us towards passionate and compassionate, gospel-centered, incarnational ministry. At the end of the day, we have to remember that the gospel is good news for sinners. It's good news for sinners. It's good news for those who live as enemies of God. And as soon as we adopt a hopeless, defeatist attitude, we've lost faith in the gospel message. And this is something I see so much in our current day. Something that I see that has gotten a hold of the church where we say, well, things have shifted a lot in 40 years. Therefore, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Is the gospel true? Is Jesus alive? Is he risen from the dead? Then there is still hope for the world. There is still hope for people to come to know Jesus. We don't get to know the times or the hours. And before every great revival, before every great awakening, you've heard me talk about this before, things look dark. They look difficult. They look like they do now. And yet a group of people always bands together, commit to prayer, commit to the fellowship, commit to the breaking of bread, commit to the prayers, and say, God, if you will move, if you will take these broken vessels— if you will take this little that we have, we will faithfully follow you. We will proclaim the gospel. We will do whatever it is you would have us to do. Think about Paul here. He's been run out of towns. There have been people that have been trying to kill him, been trying to, to shut him up. And now he gets to probably the hardest soil imaginable. And this is one of the reasons that I love this part of scripture. 
Paul has had difficulty. He's had hard times. And now he's in this place where it's even more difficult, where it's going to be even harder for him. And he's still got hope. Still has hope in the gospel's ability to turn the world upside down. He doesn't allow what he sees in the world to limit his faith in the gospel. He doesn't allow the difficulty and the struggle and the idol worship to limit his belief in Christ's ability to turn the world upside down. Paul has experienced great trials, and yet he doesn't lose hope. And this is a word that we need in this hour, friends. It's something that I hope and pray gets into the depths of our souls. We can't be hopeless people. Hopeless people and Christians are opposites. We are people of hope, people of restoration, people of reconciliation, people of revival, people of awakening. That is what Christ has done for us individually, and that's what he does collectively. Paul doesn't lose hope, even though it's been difficult, even though there have been trials. And so he goes out and he starts speaking to anyone who will listen to him. Not everyone does. That's okay. But he speaks to the ones who will listen. And as he does, some philosophers of competing frameworks start to debate with him. And I want to clarify debate. I did speech and debate in high school. You guys are probably like, yeah, that makes sense. I did speech and debate in high school, and the goal of debate is never to crush or own the other side. It's never to to go make them cry in the corner. It's to win them to your side. And I think that's a word for us as well today. I think it's something that we need to get and understand because our world right now is a world of conflict. It's a world of yelling. It's a world of you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And we never get to anything because of that. I think we have to adopt a debate where it's the goal to win people to our side. Ultimately, as Paul is talking to these philosophers, they make a charge against him that he's advocating for foreign gods, which is ultimately a big no-no. Does anyone remember Socrates? Okay, maybe you don't, but I'll, I'll give you a little help. So Socrates, the, one of the greatest of ancient philosophers, he's ultimately has some charges against him. Anyone remember the charges? You can yell them out. You get bonus points if you do. Corrupting the youth and advocating foreign gods. Those are the charges against Socrates, and he's ultimately killed for that. He's ultimately exiled, thrown into prison for that. And so when Paul is being charged with this, it's a big deal that he's advocating foreign gods. He's also corrupting the youth. He's turning the world upside down. It's exactly what they put Socrates to death for. And ultimately, Paul is brought before a meeting of the Areopagus, which isn't like this scholarly debating club. That's not what the Areopagus is. It's ultimately a court. It's a council. It's where Paul is basically on trial for this teaching that he's talking about. He's been talking about these things. It would have been the same court that would have condemned Socrates. And ultimately, Paul is brought before them, and he's being asked to explain his theology. Paul, what is this that you're talking about? You're you're saying some things that are strange to us. They admit that. That these things that Paul is talking about is strange to them. That's verse 20. And the gospel is strange. 
The gospel is strange. It's very different from the way of the world. We shouldn't lose sight of that. It's okay for us to admit that our, our way is strange. It was true then. It's true now. It's altogether different. People are going to say, you're, you're bringing some strange ideas to us. We should lean into our uniqueness. Because only the biblical gospel provides an adequate answer to the problems and the longings of our world. We need to lean into that as Paul does. Because Paul understands this and confidently provides a defense of the Christian faith. Let's read that in verses 22 through 28. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens— I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so Paul is giving a defense of his beliefs. He's talking to the council, to these scholars, to these people that know what they're talking about. And I want to, for just a moment, contrast the, the approach that Paul takes to the approach that I think we're most inclined to take usually. Paul's heart here is to help the people move from darkness to light. That's what his approach is. He isn't in the business of saying, you're wrong, I'm right. His goal is to move them from darkness into light. And he begins by building them up. He talks about all of the things that he sees. He says, I see that you are deeply religious. And that's not a bad word. It's not Paul saying, you're religious, I'm not religious. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying, I see that you're searching. I see that you're you're seeking. I see that you're, you're trying to figure out what truth is. He's saying that's a good thing. And I think this is where we typically go wrong. I think we typically see all the other religions and philosophies as a threat that must be torn down. I think that's why we get so combative about sharing the gospel. And I don't want you to mishear me. Please don't mishear me. I'm not advocating that all religions are correct. I'm not advocating that all lead to Jesus. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying and what I believe Paul is saying, that other religions and philosophies provide us, Christians, with an entry point for gospel proclamation. That's what Paul models here for us. He's going into this culture that believes completely differently than he does, and he uses what they believe. He uses that as a starting point, an entry point to proclaim the gospel. Here's an example. He, he does this by saying, for as I walked around, he doesn't just leave it vague. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully 
at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. He's using what he's observed about their religious devotion to proclaim the gospel. While other religions and philosophies are certainly not in agreement with the truth of the gospel, there is oftentimes an overlap of beliefs, or at least longings and some values that we can use to introduce people to the one true God that exists in Jesus. This means that we have to keep our eyes open, keep our ears open, to actually listen to observe, to see what's going on in the world. Not just to condemn the world, but to say, hey, I see that you're longing after this thing. I see that you value this thing. I see that you're you're worshiping this thing. Can you tell me more about why you do that? Once we do that, then it opens up the door for us to talk about the gospel, to say the things that you're longing for, The things that you value are ultimately rooted and found in Jesus. You're searching here and you're searching there, but what you really need is Jesus. Paul goes on, he continues in verse 23, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. That's what Paul was just doing. What I just illustrated to you is what Paul does here. And that word ignorant, I think oftentimes we can read it and we think Paul is saying, you ignorant bunch of buffoons. That's not at all what Paul is saying here. It's not the tone that he's taking. He's not being condescending at all. When Paul says ignorant, he just means to not understand. He says, hey, you guys are doing this, but you don't quite understand it yet. It isn't a derogatory term at all. He's speaking to people who desire to understand. That's his context. That's his audience. He's speaking to people who desire to understand, and he's deliberately using something they admittedly don't understand to preach the gospel. It's the temple to an unknown God. Now, I do want to issue a word of caution here, because in our world today, it's very easy for us to assume that we know what other people believe. And this is at root in our culture today of talking heads, where where we hear what one person believes, and we put that as the whole of what everyone believes. I don't think we should do that. I don't think we should think that one person represents the whole, nor should we take it at face value what other people tell us about a certain group of people. We need to do research ourselves. We need to seek to understand first. We should have conversations first. Now, when Paul is going to Athens, he has firsthand knowledge of what they believe. He's been well-educated. He's read and been taught the primary sources that form their belief system. That's why he's able to go into Athens and already be able to quote their poets. He's read and he has understanding. He has knowledge. He's exegeted the culture around him. He knows what's going on. So that way he can talk to them in a way that makes sense. He has experience with their source material and uses that to spread the gospel. And he's speaking to two groups of people, to Epicureans and Stoics. And these people aren't just like competing ideologies. They're very different. They have very different beliefs about philosophy and who God is. And so very generally speaking, I'm going to do what I just told you not to do. I'm going to do it very generally so that you can have an understanding of the Epicureans and the philosophers. Generally speaking, the Epicureans believe that while the gods exist, like the the Roman gods, the Greek gods, while they exist and they made the universe, they're far off and they're kind of uninvolved in the lives of people. But just in case, they're going to keep worshiping them. 
And they're going to keep going through the motions. They don't really believe they're active and involved. They kind of believe that they created the world but aren't, you know, moving in the midst. But we're still going to worship them just in case we're wrong. That's the, the Epicureans. On the other hand, the Stoics, they're, they're more pantheistic and ultimately equate God with the physical world. And therefore, they need to look within, look for themselves in meaning, and they need to seize the day. That's the underlying beliefs of these two uh, groups. And Paul understands both of their ideas. And we're not going to go specifically, I'm not going to give you a lot here just because I, I don't want to preach for two hours this morning. And I think you guys will say amen to that. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the specifics of how Paul refutes each person's belief system in there, but as you read through his refutation there, you can see him speaking to both of those things. He's speaking to both groups of people, the Stoics and the Epicureans, telling them the gospel message. And let me just kind of summarize that. In verses 24 through 28, Paul speaks of God making the world and everything in it. He speaks of God giving life and everything to everyone, that he's not far off, that he does not live in temples, that he's not reliant upon humans. And then Paul quotes two of the people's poets, saying that in him we live and move and have our being, and that we are his offspring. Paul, in beautifully thought-out brushstrokes, has shown how God is a personal God. That's a blow against the Epicureans. How he's created us in his image and he works actively among us. That he's a God that is knowable and lovable, a blow to both sides of them. He's altogether different than what they believe and think. But as Paul shows, they've longed for a God like this. They've erected temples to this God. Their poets have talked about this God. It's foundational to the underlying beliefs of who they are. They're longing for this type of of God. Paul is just reintroducing them to the God that they're all seeking, and now he gives them an altar call. Let's look at that in verses 29 through 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. True gospel proclamation always includes a call to repentance. It does. In order for it to be a gospel message, it has to include a call to repentance, to lay aside your former way of life and to follow Jesus instead. God has shown the way of salvation through Jesus. By his resurrection, Jesus proves that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who holds power even over death itself. God will judge the world. It's the promise that he has. But in that promise is this, this message that all who are in Christ aren't going to be judged based off what they've done, based off all of their sin, all of their failures, all of their wrongdoings, but instead will be judged based off Jesus' righteousness, his perfect righteousness. And this is called imputed righteousness. It's imputed unto us. Even though we're unworthy, God sees us as worthy because of who Jesus is. 
The resurrection of Jesus provides the evidence of God's goodness towards us. We can know that his promises are true because he's been raised from the dead. In Christ alone, there is salvation because in Christ alone, there is resurrection. This is what Paul's message here is. He's saying that this Jesus is unlike anything else. Look, he's been raised from the dead. This is how you know his message is true. As we point people to Jesus, we must include a call to repent and a call to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Both of these are ultimately a call of self-denial. It's us putting our faith, our trust, our allegiance in Jesus and not ourselves or anything else. It's to say, because Jesus was raised from the dead, I can believe that his way is true. But there's the other side of this. We've talked about the side for those who believe in Jesus, but we also have to remember the other side, friends. We have to remember the consequences for those who are not in Christ, for those who remain in their trespasses, for those who remain in their bondage. They'll be judged by God, and God will look at their lives based off what they've done, and they won't measure up. Scripture tells us that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. It's eternal separation from God. It's hell. Those who aren't in Christ, they'll be judged this way. And I'm concerned because I don't think that moves us. I'm concerned because I think oftentimes we hear that and we say, well, they're going to get what they deserve. And while that is true, I think it misses out on what God has done in the gospel. I think it misses out on what God has called us to do. Woe to us if our response is, well, they're getting what they deserve. Woe to us, friends. Because our God looked at the world, he looked at our sorry state, and he stepped into it and said, I see what they're doing. I see their sin, I see their shame, I see their rebellion, and I'm going to step in to make a way. He doesn't sit back and say, well, they're getting what they deserve. That's not what our God has done. Our God has stepped into our messiness. He has stepped into our sin and our shame and our rebellion, and he said, I will go in their place. I will live the life that they can't live. I will die the death they deserve. And I will show them how much I love them by defeating death itself. The very thing that I said is the penalty for their rebellion. And all who believe in me will not experience death, but will have eternal life. That is what God has done for us. He stepped into our rebellion, stepped into our shame, stepped into our sin, and he made a way. Woe to us! If we look at the world and say, well, they're living as enemies, they get what they deserve. God didn't do that to us, and we should not do that to the world. We should be motivated by what God has done for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, stuck in our shame, stuck in our rebellion, he made a way. He washed us white as snow, poured out his love and his grace 
and his mercy. This should compel us to go out to all people and compel them to come to Christ to say, look at Jesus. Come to him. We should look at the world not with contempt, but with compassion. As people who don't yet know Jesus. And to do this, we have to be relational. We have to get to know our neighbors and our coworkers. We have to contend for the good of the city as God commanded the Israelites to do in exile. There's so much that's similar between our world we live in and the Israelites in exile. I'm not going to go into it this morning. We have to be hospitable. We have to welcome those who are very different from us. We have to be missional, sharing the gospel and inviting people over time to repent and follow Jesus. To be a reaching church means that we have to take our swords and turn them into plowshares. Take something that can be used for destruction and instead use it for something that can plant seeds. The world needs a church that's willing to sow seeds, not a church that wants to exterminate weeds. That's what the world needs. A church who will sow seeds of the gospel, proclaim the good news of Jesus, not a church that will just look at the world contemptuously and say, go die. May God soften our hearts to those who don't know him. May he create in us a desire to see the lost saved, the saved equipped, and the equipped sent. Let's finish by reading the last three verses. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. I think often we can read this and think that Paul failed because only a few people became Christians. I think often we think that only extraordinary results count for anything. But that's antithetical to Jesus. He says in Luke 15, 10, that when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. Paul was a roaring, raving success here, even though only a few follows him. As Paul finishes up, many reject him. Some are mulling it over and want to hear more, and others do become Christians. Our job is to be faithful, to sow seeds and allow God to work, allow him to provide the growth. We can't get discouraged if only a few respond. We can't get discouraged about the results. Instead, we just have to take what God has sown, what he has resulted, and equip the ones who do respond. We reach and then we equip. God has called us to be an equipping church that makes biblically faithful and missionally zealous disciples of Jesus. Paul doesn't just leave those who become Christians to their own devices. In verse 34, it says, some of them become followers of Paul, which literally means that they followed him. They walked with him. They learned from him. 
They saw his way of life. They, they started learning more about this Jesus. The inner workings of the faith, the, the deeper life. They started learning this from Paul. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul talks about this. He talks about what equipping looks like. He, he says to them, follow me as I follow Christ. This is what discipleship looks like. It's a call to equip others to follow Jesus by showing them how you follow him. Your life is a testimony to the gospel, for good or for bad. We should be people that show others what it looks like to follow Jesus. And this requires us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. To look to him so that we can show others how to do the same. It also requires us to live among others. To be present, to be incarnational. God has called us to be disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. Who ma- okay, I'll stop. You get it. He's called us to that. And the call to make disciples isn't for the professional Christians. It's for all of us. The call to make disciples is a call to every disciple to reproduce. Finally, God has called us to be a sending church who sends out missionaries and church planters. In verse 34, one of the people who becomes a disciple of Paul is Dionysius. He's a member of the Areopagus. And this Dionysius, he, he ultimately follows Paul. He learns about the way of Jesus from Paul. And what history tells us is that he becomes the first pastor in the church at Athens. He follows Paul. He hears the gospel from Paul. He gets discipled by Paul. And then he gets sent by Paul to go back to the place, to pastor there, to do the work. It was a place where the harvest was plentiful, but the workers were few. But God raised up a worker. He raised up Paul to share the good news. And one person heard about it, got discipled, and ultimately continued to plow so that others would be saved. In the north country, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. The vast majority of people, and I want you to hear that. I'm going to reiterate it. The vast majority of people in the north country remain unsaved. They remain without knowledge of Jesus. They remain without a relationship with him. We need gospel-centered presence. We need you and I to go into the world to reach people, to equip them, and to send them out as well. To send out other church plants, to send out missionaries, to do all of that. God has called us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's our city, our region, the neighboring regions, and the whole world. What we do today reverberates throughout the next 10 20, 40, 100 years of ministry as North Country Alliance Church. May we be people who are committed to reaching our community with the good news of the gospel in word and deed. May we be people who equip the saints for the work of ministry. May we be people who send them out locally and to the ends of the earth. May we be people who take big, faith-filled risks for the sake of the gospel. 
May we be people so captivated by what Jesus has done for us that we contend sacrificially for the sake of those who don't know him yet. The time is now for us to wholeheartedly surrender to God and allow him to use us for his glory. This is the last thing I promise. I wrote this down just in the margin uh, of my notes as I was studying for this message. Uh, There's a poet named Wendell Berry, and he once wrote, Invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Sequoias, giant trees, right? One day they weren't giant. One day they were small. We've been planted here. God has planted this church here, and now we're to continue planting to continue sowing seeds, to continue to allow him to move in us. God has not called us to tear down. That is not the mission of the church. He hasn't called us to tear down. He has called us to build up. So in a world of critics, be a creator. Like a chef, let your life emit a sweet aroma. Like an artist, let your life be a portrait of the good life in Jesus. Like an architect, design your life in a way that that elicits wonder. Like a composer, let your life move others with a compelling melody. The best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. The second best time is today. Will you stand with me as we pray? Father, we are thankful for your love, your kindness, and your mercy towards us. We're thankful that you didn't write us off. That you didn't look at our sin and say, you dirty, rotten sinners, get away from me. But instead, you looked at our state and you came near You took on flesh. You lived the life that we couldn't live. You died the death we deserve. And through your resurrection, you proclaim the forgiveness of sins, of life eternal. You say to us, all you who are weary, tired of doing it on your own, come to me and I will give you rest. You're a God of redemption, a God of reconciliation, a God of peace, a God of kindness, a God of love. And you have done this for us, O Lord. And you've called us as ministers of reconciliation to go into the world, to tell others of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. That as a church, we we humbly submit ourselves before you. And we ask for you to have your way. We ask for you to make us people of the gospel, people of good news. People who reach our community, people who equip, people who send. And we ask for you to do a new thing in us. And we don't want to be a flash in the pan. We want to be faithful. 
knowing that that's going to look like sloppy obedience a lot of the time. Have your way in us, Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.